and Herb Snyder's podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Hey, Paul. Uh, Stuart's not here tonight. Well, hello, Matt. Oh, I just <laughs> want to see what that felt like. It felt terrible. I, I don't know how Stuart lives with himself. We're going to be talking about lupus tonight, Paul. But first, would you tell the audience what we do on this show? Sure. Happy to, as always. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Um, as per usual, we um, took the time up front about the first 10 minutes to get to know our guests a little bit. So, if there's a song in your heart and a smile on your face, go ahead and listen to that. Otherwise, you can feel free to move past it to the good stuff. <laughs> and just to give you a little bit of a heads up what we did on the show, we spent a lot of time talking about the diagno- diagnosis of lupus, how to take a history, what to look for on exam, the basic labs to order up front, and, and how to kind of interpret those labs. And then we talked about some primary care prevention, preventive measures that you can take for patients with lupus. And then finally, we talked a little bit about the basics of treatments, but we didn't really dive really deep into like the the big guns like cyclophosphamide and things like that. Generally, at that point, patients have multiple specialists on board, and uh, we didn't feel that was the best use of our time. So, (laughs) Paul, why don't you tell them about our wonderful guest, and then we'll get on with the show. Sure. And she was indeed wonderful. Uh, We had the good pleasure of talking with Dr. Beth Jonas today. Uh, Dr. Jonas is the Reeves Foundation Distinguished Professor of Medicine and the Chief of Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Until very recently, she served as the Director of Rheumatology Fellowship Training Program at UNC. Dr. Jonas received her medical degree from SUNY Upstate Medical Center and completed her residency in internal medicine at the George Washington University, where she also served as Chief Resident. She completed a fellowship training in rheumatology at Emory University. Dr. Jones is a clinician educator and has an active rheumatology practice where she sees patients with a wide spectrum of inflammatory rheumatic disorders. She teaches rheumatology to medical students, residents, and fellows, and is actively involved in curricular development to train both physicians and advanced practice practitioners in rheumatology. Dr. Jonas was awarded the American College Rheumatology Distinguished Fellowship Program Director Award in 2015, and has received a Rheumatology Research Foundation Clinician Scholar Educator Award. And we are thrilled to have the chance to talk to her today about lupus. Uh, something something about a wolf and a moon. Does that make sense? I mean, as much sense as they ever make. I think it's fine. <laughs> So, Beth, the first question we ask on the show, and I guess we could start now if you're ready, is can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and tell them a little bit about yourself outside of what you do in medicine? Sure. So I'm an academic rheumatologist, um, primarily a clinician educator, although I have spent um, some time doing clinical research. I'm a mom of two, a wife. Um, uh, I love to teach, and uh, outside of the hospital, I play the flute and um, spend time with family and friends. Is that, so you're a flautist. Uh, are you? <laughs> I was just waiting for you to say it. At, at what, what level are we talking about here? Like, do you, are you in like an orchestra just for fun? 
So I studied music quite seriously um, before I went to medical school. Um, actually studied at the Juilliard School um, many years ago, so was quite an accomplished flautist um, in a previous life. And now I just play for fun. I play in a local flute choir with a bunch of other, um, you know, fun flute players. So it's my way of decompressing a little bit and, and having fun. Paul, you look like you're going to say something. I don't I, no, on you. I No, <laughs> you know me too well. The Jethro Tull jokes are just sort of spinning through my mind. I was just, just do my Ian Anderson now. Yeah, go. Oh, God bless you. We're going to do great. <laughs> this is going to be a good episode. Uh, I would just like to point out to the audience, I, I love that answer because uh, when when lots of people go into medicine, I find that they stop doing hobbies. Maybe I'm projecting, but they stop the hobbies that made them what you know that made them who they were before they just put their head down and went into medical school residency fellowship post fellowship all, all that stuff and i i love that you've kept it up uh, so that's that's just great role modeling for for the learners out there well i wish i could say that i kept it up all through residency fellowship junior faculty level i think it's become a bigger part of my life now that i have a little bit more flexibility but mm-hmm. it it's always um i think it's very important to have some activities and uh, outside of outside of the hospital that make you whole. Agreed. So speaking of, I'm going to transition to my favorite question. Um, and even though I'm amassing book recommendations and books that I still haven't had a chance to read, I'm still going to ask for one more. Um, so it's what book do you feel like every physician should read? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a book about medicine or anything related, even just about life or just a book that you enjoy and, and read to, to to compensate from the stresses of medicine. So what, what's a book every doc should read? So I write a lot of prescriptions, and so I'm not going to prescribe any uh, books to my doctor friends or colleagues. But one book that I would say sort of uh, was made an impression on me was um, the book called How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman, um, which is now about 10 or more years old. But the the reason I think it's really important to read the book, and I thought it was important for me, is that it talked about a lot of the things, you know, it sort of operationalized a lot of the ideas that I think we are feeling in medicine about how we make decisions, the uncertainty in a lot of the decisions that we have to make, particularly in rheumatology, and really the power of listening, um, which I think gets lost um, a lot of times in our very busy life. So I would say that that's one medical book that that I think was very important to me in my um, learning. Solid recommendation. I think it's come up probably a couple times at least. Yeah, absolutely. I All these book recommendations, myself and I know multiple audience members have mentioned to me at conferences that they're getting bogged down with all these book recommendations. <laughs> I think we should oh. keep giving them though. I just Absolutely. Get some culture. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> we, we have a running list on the website for the audience. So you take your time. You got your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> just get to them when you can. <laughs> Listen, PSA, there's more out there than Harry Potter. I'm just I'm just saying it out loud. Um, come at me. But there are other books. <laughs> All right. One last question before we get into the main topic of lupus. Can you give the audience some career advice that you've gotten uh, that maybe you wish you would have had earlier, you know, when you were coming through, uh, coming up in medicine? So... Yeah, this is, this is kind of a tough one. I mean, I've gotten a lot of good advice along the way and a lot of good mentors and physicians that I've worked with. And I'm not even sure if someone gave me this advice or 
I sort of concocted it on my own over the years. And, and that is, um, you know, we're always taught, particularly as young women, that we can do everything we want to do. And uh, I took that to heart. But what I realized is you can't do it all at the same time. And so, you know, sort of pacing yourself and, and you know, setting your goals um, and, and really trying to decide what's important to you, but not trying to do it all at once. And that you have a long career ahead of you and um, you should um, do what makes you happy right now and, and continue to evolve. So I, I think, you know, I talk to a lot of young physicians in my position and I try to encourage them to be mindful of that um, and to really not to try to do everything at the same time. I just wanted to make a comment on that, that we, we get a lot of advice sort of on that, on that same. And I, we've even had some people on take almost like a nuanced stance, like don't be afraid to try too much. But I, I think the caveat that you have to add to, to that, and it's kind of your point is like, you, you can't take on too much. Like, yes, you can do more than one thing, but if you do too many, then you become like ineffective at everything. So it I, it depends on who you are. Like somebody that has tremendous capacity might be able to do a couple big projects at one time, especially if they're switching between them. And but I I just find at some point you could just be like you could be overwhelmed into the point of inaction if you take on too much. The quality of your work is important, um, and so if you're going to take on a project or even thinking about uh, in academia, if are you going to be a clinician? Are you going to be an educator? Are you going to be a researcher? Are you going to try to be all three of those things at the same time and be excellent at all three? I mean, I think that's certainly a lofty goal, and there are some people who are really, really good at it. Um, but, but to try to choose something and be good at it, I think, is really important. Paul, did you want to comment? Do you? I'm not even sure if it's worth saying out loud, but it's. I, I think. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I just, you know, we, we talk about, you know, burnout or, you know, emotional exhaustion or however you want to phrase it a lot. And I, I feel like the message that we sometimes send out to especially our trainees is you have to be the best doctor you can possibly be, but it's important to take time for yourself and also maintain one of your hobbies. But you got to exercise, make sure you sleep enough, but go home and pet your dog. But take good care of your patients. And you have to pass the boards. Did you write up that abstract? But please make sure that you're taking care of yourself and do at least two things that you really, really love. And make sure that you do them well. And I think like we just... I think you have to kind of choose your battles at a time. There's there's time where you can expand your interests, but especially in training, I don't think that you can do all of the above. And I'm not sure if that's the, the exact message that you're conveying, which is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And set boundaries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and with that, lupus. Lupus. <laughs> because I like his uh, the way he reads things, I will ask Paul. Paul, can you read uh, our case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital? And I should uh, thank... Dr. Catherine Grant, who is our resident artist and, and also sometimes writer, who, who uh, wrote this case up for us. Yes, three cheers for Kate, and happy to read this. Uh, so we are going to be discussing today Ms. Luna Wolferton, um, the, the very common name, is a 30-year-old African-American mother of two, and she's coming in with fatigue, occasional painless mouth ulcers, and then sort of generalized muscle aches and sort of joint aches as well, and it seems to have gotten worse over the past three to four months. So she has really painful joints in her hands, and she feels kind of stiff in the morning. Um, you, being a far more observant doctor than I, noticed that she has heavy makeup on. And she says, really, she can't remember the last time that she felt well. Um, last year, she asked to be checked for thyroid stuff because she, she'd heard that can make you feel bad, but that came back normal. 
And she came in to see you today because she actually started to urinate blood, and she's worried that she might have a urinary tract infection. And so I guess to sort of start out this case, um, I might ask, coming to you, what might your differential diagnosis be and sort of what's your initial impression of Ms. Wolferton? Right. So, I mean, I think um, the differential diagnosis is actually pretty broad here, and we try to be um, inclusive you know, when we think about cases like this, of course, we're talking about lupus today, so that we know where we're going here. But you don't want to miss other things. And so, you know, obviously, other autoimmune diseases, other forms of arthritis, even, you know, non autoimmune rheumatic diseases, such as fibromyalgia, we want to think about an infection, although, you know, three to four months of symptoms would be unusual, or worry about malignancy. Could this be a hematologic malignancy or something like that? And then, of course, endocrine disorders, thyroid being the most common, but we know that her thyroid was okay. So we really try to take a very broad view when we see a patient like this, as I'm sure most internists would. And I think one of the points Kate had made when she was looking this up is, is there a delay in diagnosis if someone has lupus? Is it, how long does it commonly take for people to get diagnosed? Like if they're not presenting with just like kind of like classic, a classic picture? Yeah, there can be a significant delay in some patients, particularly if their symptoms are nonspecific like this patient. So arthralgia, some oral ulcers, you know, generalized malaise and fatigue. I mean, this is really bread, bread and butter kind of stuff that people come to the office, the vast majority of whom will not have lupus. Right, so, right. you know, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole unnecessarily. And so many of these patients will have a delay in diagnosis. I think if you get to the point where you start peeing blood, you know, th that's a different sort of situation. Yeah. And now we've got an organ system that we're worried about. Yes. I think, I think it'd be helpful if you just Maybe maybe you could point out some of like the key historical factors that make you start to think of lupus, and then we we can go through the exam and some of the other stuff. Yeah, so so I think in this case specifically, this is a young person. She's thirty years old, so you know, autoimmunity, you know, is quite prevalent in this age range. So that I'll be thinking about that. And African Americans, it's more prevalent in African Americans. And when autoimmunity happens, it tends to be more severe in that group. So fatigue, the oral ulcers that are painless. So most people who have oral ulcers are, they're painful. So, you know, typically, you know, um, aphthous ulcers, so painless mouth ulcers. And, and most people don't even know that they have them. So it's unusual for someone to come complaining of them. It's usually something that we find on our exam. Um, you know, it's gone on for a long time. So it's probably not a viral infection. So that, that time course, the, the uh, arthralgia in the hands um, makes me think about autoimmunity. The makeup is interesting because many people will come to the office with makeup and they're wearing it because they have a rash on their face. Um, and so you really have to be tuned into that and ask about it and potentially take off that makeup so that you can see what's what's underneath. Um, we might ask about other symptoms such as fever in this patient, um, if they've ever had any adenopathy, um, if they've ever had chest pain, you know, sort of pericardial kind of stuff. Um, She's a mother of two. How old are her children? Did she have any pregnancy complications? There's a lot of places we could go with this history um, that might um, give us some further information of concern about autoimmune disease. Can, can you talk a little bit about the difference between like classification 
criteria for lupus and making an actual diagnosis of lupus. And, and it, the ULAR, uh, this is, it's a shame Stuart's not here. He loves the, the League of Rheumatism. Is it, or is it Arthritis and League of Arthritis and Rheumatism? Is European it? League Against Rheumatism. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not tremendous fans. Is it sounds like, uh, sounds like some kind of uh, movie. There should be a movie. I know you're a member of the <laughs> ACR. Yeah, exactly. That's what he did. Last time he mocked up a poster of uh, ULAR with like the Justice League on it. <laughs> you So ULAR and the ACR recently in 2019, they, they kind of changed the classification criteria for lupus. And the article I was reading, this is from Dorner 2019 in The Lancet. They were talking about how that, that does not, is not the same thing as diagnosis. And can you talk about how they differ? Or is it important for us to know how they differ? Well, it's important to know because, you know, the classification criteria, and this is true for almost every rheumatic disease that has criteria, are really designed to identify patients to enroll in clinical trials and not really to make a diagnosis at the bedside. Having said that, you know, the domains that we're looking at and the way you approach this can be very valuable in the clinic. Um, So I don't think you're going to make a definitive diagnosis. I don't think it can help you make a definitive diagnosis, but it certainly can, you know, sort of send you in the right direction. And what's interesting about these new criteria is that they are much more sensitive in early disease than our previous criteria. And so although they're really not even out there yet and being used, they're really hot off the presses, it will be interesting to see, you know, how we use these criteria because there may be people who don't quite meet the criteria for the diagnosis of lupus based on this new um, um, classification but we know that they're on the road to developing lupus and what happens to those people. So I think we're going to be able to study our patients much better um, having these uh, criteria out there and people using them in the clinic. But, you know, there's a, there's a, a tendency to, to use them to make a diagnosis, but it's, it, they're really designed for, for clinical trials so that we know that we're enrolling patients with lupus in trials. I thought it was interesting that this one of the the entry criterion for everybody they have to have at least a 1 to 80 positive ANA so that's a very low titer at least right. from what i've been taught and uh that's for the classification criteria so for these like if someone was in a research study they have to have the positive ANA but the 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 article meant made the point that you would you would potentially diagnose someone with lupus without a positive ANA cuz not everyone technically needs to have it most people do but I, it, maybe you could comment on on ANAs at this point. Yeah. So, you know, I think the vast majority of people with lupus are going to have an ANA at some point. And, um, you know, the previous criteria don't require an ANA, although if you look at cohorts of patients with lupus, you know, almost all the patients will have an ANA. And if they don't, it always makes us question the diagnosis. Um, the other thing about the ANA is that it really depends on your lab and how they're doing the test. And there may be places where the ANA is more or less sensitive. So, I mean, if you have every other criteria and you don't have an ANA in the clinic, we're going to call that lupus. But for the purposes of this classification criteria, um, you have to have an ANA to make that diagnosis. 
let me, if you don't mind, let me ask the question a different way. Um, so I, I think of there, there are two cognitive specialties where I feel like, unfortunately, you're viewed at as, as the smartest, which means if we don't know what's going on, we refer to you. And it's, it's, it's rheumatology and infectious diseases over and over and over again. So if we don't know what's going on, we're like, all right, these people are pretty smart. They went to these smart fields. I hope they figure it out. So I guess my question is, is who is the right patient to order an ANA for? So I sort of, I see it viewed as almost like a permission slip when it comes back positive to then re- refer to rheumatology, but how should we be thinking about it and which patient should we be selectively ordering uh, ANAs or actually any of the sort of the, the serologies for? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think you have to really have a reasonably good index of suspicion that your patient has an autoimmune disease. And by that, I mean that they have some organ system that's involved that makes you think they could have lupus or mixed connective tissue disease or one of the other um, autoimmune diseases. You know, in the case of our patient, actually, you know, mother of two with fatigue myalgia, arthralgia, pain, but no synovitis, I'm not sure I would order an ANA necessarily without the painless mouth ulcers, which is a criteria, right? And the hematuria, which makes me very concerned. So again, the if you have just a lot of nonspecific features, an ANA is not going to be that helpful. But if there's an organ system that you can say, ha, huh, this, this is, you know, meets a criteria, then I think an ANA could be very helpful. As a, as a follow-up question to pause, when, and this would happen when I was, when I was doing primary care in the office, sometimes you'd get these patients that would come in with what sounded like maybe morning stiffness, or they, they had some joints that were inflamed, they were fatigued, and maybe they had some nonspecific rashes. And you want to just kind of get a sense, is this patient inflamed? Like, do I need to start to send, uh, you know, the rheumatologic workup or connective tissue disease workup? And and what I was taught was to send like a CBC, uh, a liver and kidney panel, and you could consider like an ESR or CRP and a urinalysis to see if there's, you know, is there protein? Are there red cells in the urine? Um, maybe microscopy to see if there's dysmorphic red cells. Do you have like a screening panel like that or, or do you modify that in any way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, it's first principles of medicine. It's really, it's really very simple. And I, I even pare it down even more than that. I mean, I get a CBC and a urinalysis, mm-hmm. you know, in a patient who I have a very low index of suspicion and, and of course a TSH, you know, we talked about, you know, hypothyroidism certainly could do this. I mean, you want to do all your general medical stuff, but if you're really thinking about lupus, if you have a normal CBC and a normal urinalysis, it doesn't mean that they couldn't have lupus, but you don't have to worry about it yet. You can watch this evolve. So, you know, I think just some very simple tests, obviously an excellent physical examination, looking for signs and symptoms, you know, careful rash, you know, look at the skin, look at the joints, look in the mouth, all the usual places. Um, so careful history, physical, and some very basic labs is probably all you need to do. Love it. Uh, the less, the better. I, I, I like taking a minimalist approach to ordering laboratory tests, especially if it avoids a, you know, one to 80 positive ANA with no other findings. And then that oh. patient is labeled <laughs> as lupus because I've seen that patient out there many times. Um, Paul, would you like to take us on with the case here? 
Sure, happy to. So we do a, a relatively minimalist um, lab workup, and the patient's blood results show the following. She has a hemoglobin of 7.9, white blood cell count of 5, platelet count of 100. Uh, creatinine is okay at 0.8, AST is 30, ALT is 25, her alkafos is normal. She has a total bilia of 1, an albumin of 3, and a total protein of 6, and no evidence of coagulopathy, uh, or at least her coags are within normal limits. Her urine dipstick is positive for blood, uh, but negative for nitrites and leukocytes, and we were especially diligent, cultured it, and the culture came back negative. And so where, what do we do with this information? Is this confirmatory? Does this refute anything? And, and where should we go from here? Yeah, so I think that this, these preliminary results, you know, are of concerning. She's anemic to start. White count is normal. We don't know what the differential of that is. If there were lymphopenia, that may also make us a little bit more concerned. Platelet count is low, not horrifically low, but certainly um, not normal. So, you know, the hematologic parameters are abnormal. The chemistries are reassuring and not the, at least right now, the uh, creatinine is fine, but the urine, obviously positive for blood, makes me concerned about glomerulonephritis. So, you know, I think all of this is, you know, mounting evidence uh, for a diagnosis. What might be the next step? Where would you take this next? Would you would you send more labs? Would you do more investigation um, of the renal function somehow? Well, obviously, she needs a kidney biopsy. Um, regardless, you know, lupus or not lupus, if you've got, you know, blood in your urine and you don't have a good other good reason for that, I'm assuming we don't have kidney stones or your epithelial tumors or things of that nature, but, um, you know, she will need to have a renal biopsy. Of course, the serology, this is where the serology can be very helpful. Um, so you have a very high index of suspicion for lupus. So, um, you know, I would send an ANA, an ENA panel, look at her complements, look at double-stranded DNA, um, and, you know, that will get sent off and be cooking um, for a couple of days before that comes back, and I will call my trusty nephrology colleagues and, and, and get her set up for a kidney biopsy. Let's talk through the, the ENA. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I know the difference between an ENA and an ANA, and, and, and maybe you can talk about what you're looking for when you order those tests you just mentioned. Right. So the ANA is our screening test. Um, and um, the it's a quite a a sensitive test, but not specific. So 10% of healthy women are ANA positive. But if you're concerned, as I am about this patient, the ENA panel, it's a panel of antibodies. It, it may be different in different hospitals. In our hospital, you get an uh, anti-Smith antibody, you get um, a Rho antibody, a LA antibody, an SCL70, an anti-JO1, and one and an RNP antibody, but that may be different in different labs. And and those antibodies have much higher specificity for certain autoimmune diseases. And in lupus, the Smith antibody is highly sensitive for um, disease, as well as antibodies to double-stranded DNA. And 
particularly in a patient with lupus who we are concerned about renal disease, the presence of a DNA antibody is very suggestive and, and, and helpful in um, informing that diagnosis because we know that the level of the anti-DNA antibody may correlate with renal disease. So that's where your ENA panel and your antibody to double-stranded DNA would come in in this case. The complement C3 and C4 um, can also help you. They're typically low in patients with very active lupus uh, and also may correlate with uh, renal disease. Excellent. I feel like um, I, I learned this a long time ago. and uh... <laughs> <laughs> Me flashing back to screwing up mixed-up questions just left and right. This is great. <laughs> so do we have enough to, to call it lupus in Ms. Wolferton at this point or... Well, can, we, can we give her the formal diagnosis yet, or what else do we need to sort of get her across the finish line? So that's an interesting question, and it really depends on whether you're going to count the criteria. But a minute ago, I told you, you really don't need the criteria to make a clinical diagnosis. Right. Um, I'd like to see the serology. Um, I think that would really help me. Um, you know, without a kidney biopsy and without serology, I don't think we're quite there yet because... The question is, could this be something else? Could this be systemic vasculitis with the glomerulonephritis? Certainly possible, although generally we don't see thrombocytopenia in that case. So I think we're close, but I would like to see either the kidney biopsy um, or the serology before I said with certainty that that's what this is. But I think, I think we're pretty close. And I guess my, my other question is, as you're sort of circling in, you know, this is bewildering to me as someone on the, the wrong end of the bell curve in medicine, but, you know, explaining it to a patient in terms of what a diagnosis of lupus means, like how, how do you explain sort of what you're looking for and what the diagnosis actually means when you're, when you're talking to it about it with a patient? Right. So a lot of that discussion um, really depends on what clinical manifestation the patients have. So in this patient, who we're very worried about kidney disease, the discussion is going to go quite a bit differently than it would go with somebody who has some you know, arthritis and a rash. In this case, I think you know, we want to impress upon this patient the, um, the seriousness of this particular problem and the importance of making a diagnosis, because we know that if we can make a diagnosis now... Um, while her kidney function is good, that treatment could certainly preserve that kidney function. And because she is a young African-American woman, she's at high risk of progression of her kidney disease. So I think the most important thing at this point is, you know, to have a discussion about the impact of the lupus potentially on her kidneys and the importance of doing a careful workup, getting a kidney biopsy and getting her into treatment. You know, in patients who have mild, milder symptoms, you have a little bit more time to, you know, meet with them and talk with them about lupus. Many people don't understand what lupus is. Um, I think a lot of doctors don't know what lupus is. Um, and and it's, a hard, it's a hard disease to explain to people um, and really depends on your level of education. But, you know, what I explain to people is this is a disease where your body makes antibodies really against its own tissue um, and causes inflammation in many areas, including the skin, the joints, the kidneys, the brain, uh, any really can involve any organ system. And the important part for the patient is that we need to get that inflammation under control with, 
you know, medications and careful follow-up. I wanted to see if we could just point out to the audience uh, what what you would consider a positive ANA titer. The the lab at Cashlack Memorial is nice enough to say anything less than one to one sixty they don't really care about. I know that the the, the paper that I quoted earlier has it set at a one to eighty, but uh, less than one to one sixty. I mean, in, I don't know. What, if you use something or if it's more just like that's just one part of a multifactorial thing. And if the patient looks like lupus, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier, it's possible to have lupus and have a negative ANA. So mm-hmm. I think you have to put that into that context. And a lot will depend on the clinical presentation. So if I have a patient who has no signs and symptoms of systemic lupus and someone orders an ANA and it's 1 to 160 or 1 to 320, it doesn't make them any more likely to have lupus if they don't have any signs and symptoms. So it's really hard to know what the titer means in and of itself. Okay. Generally, anything less than 1 to 80, I don't even look at. But if, you know, someone has, you know, hematuria, thrombocytopenia, and 1 to 80, well, that that's worrisome. Thank you. I think that's, I think that's clear. Hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully we we hammered that one home, Paul. What do you think? <laughs> I think we'll still have, um, I won't name the specific specialty, but there'll still be order sets that will still throw back ANAs of 1 to 80 that will shed a single tear over and not know what to do with. But <laughs> I, I think this will help our listeners. I wanted to know, you, so you mentioned that some people just have uh, have more time. They have just joint or skin findings. Is there any... Um, it seems like patients with lupus can do whatever they want. Like they could, one day they can come in with neuropsychiatric symptoms like CNS disease. One day they can come in with lupus nephritis. Sometimes they just have a rash or joint pain. Is there any, are there any like big kind of phenotypes that you split this into? Or is it just like every patient is rewriting? They're all snowflakes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I don't think there are any hard and fast rules about this. and, you know, like a lot of what we do in rheumatology is we follow patients very closely, um, really to get a sense of what their disease phenotype is. Um, and, you know, people usually will declare themselves pretty early on if they're going to have very severe disease. So most patients who with lupus who are going to develop nephritis are going to do so in the first few years of disease. That's not to say they can't develop it later on, but the most of the time, if you're going to have um, severe renal disease, you're going to do that in the first few years. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty unpredictable at its onset, um, but within the first year or so, people generally sort of declare themselves about what path they're going to be on. But, you know, not everybody follows all the rules and uh, all bets are off some days. Beth, I, I wanted to take it on to the treatment a little bit. Let's let's start by just saying, like, we, you already gave us your spiel about how you explain to patients what lupus is, and let's make her disease a little bit less severe. Let's make it so we don't really think this is lupus nephritis, so probably something where, as a primary care doctor, we would probably feel a little bit more comfortable taking some sort of role in this. How would you counsel the person who just has maybe skin and joint involvement, maybe some mild cytopenias? How do you counsel them about lifestyle modification? Right. So one of the things that we know is that UV radiation uh, is 
quite detrimental to patients with lupus. And so we talk a lot about sun protection. So sunscreen, big hats, in some places people wear sun protective clothing if you're in an environment where you're exposed to a lot of sun, but to be really careful about sun exposure. That's very important. Smoking cessation is something else we spend a fair bit of time on. That's really very important. Um, cardiovascular disease prevention, um, you know, patients with lupus and and patients really with other systemic autoimmune diseases are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So in as much as we can limit other risk factors such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, all of those things are going to be critically important to a patient with lupus. And in turn, other than the obvious cardiovascular benefits of tobacco cessation, are there any other especially deleterious effects of smoking and someone who's, who's living with lupus? Yeah. So there's some evidence that smoking is actually an environmental trigger for autoimmunity. We know that for certain in rheumatoid arthritis, and it's probably true in lupus also. So that's in case you needed another good reason to stop smoking. <laughs> what about what about physical activity? And I, I, I know other people have made the point on the show to phrase it as physical activity or just being mobile uh, instead of instead of calling it exercise, which intimidates a lot of people. Right. Um, well, we, we are on that bandwagon big time in, in rheumatology. Um, physical activity is probably very, very important. Um, you know, many of our patients are at high risk of osteoporosis. Um, uh, and, you know, weight-bearing physical activity can uh, ameliorate some of that. So, And also moving your joints um, keeps them from being stiff or sore. Um, so there's there's a lot of benefits to being active, preventing obesity, which we know is bad for uh, everybody, but particularly for patients with lupus who may also be on corticosteroids or other medications that may exacerbate that risk. And we, we've asked this before. We asked uh, one of your colleagues, Dr. McLean, uh, Robert McLean, about this when we were talking about rheumatoid arthritis, anti-inflammatory diets. What do you uh, what do you think about those? Do those exist? <laughs> do they exist? Um, well, yes, they exist and people promote them. Do I think they're valuable? Not in my clinical experience. I just, I just don't think that there's uh, any uh, data that says we should, you know, advise our patients about that. Having said that, many of my patients will come to me you know, with a list of the diet and this is what they're going to do. And I don't object to that, but I, I don't, um, counsel people about that. Very good. When I wanted to ask a practical question, uh, pa patients with lupus that's that's active, they're exposed to a lot of steroids. We'll talk about the treatment in a second here. You mentioned the bone disease. When, just as from a practical perspective, like for a thirty-year-old woman, let's say she's going to go on steroids, when would you start? Would you check a baseline bone density and then you just follow it every so often, or how do you how do you approach that in her? Let's say she's going to be on. 10 milligrams of steroids for uh, a while. Yeah, I probably would not. If someone's going to be on low-dose prednisone for a short period of time who's 30 years old, I probably would not measure a bone density. You know, the, the 
utility of a bone density in that age group is really pretty limited. And I want to just remind our listeners that we would not be looking at T-scores, but we would be looking at Z-scores in women who are premenopausal. But if I have a patient like that who's going to be on low dose for a short period of time, I would probably advise calcium, vitamin D, weight-bearing um, physical activity, um, and and leave it at that. If I have a patient who's had a fracture or who's going to be on high doses of corticosteroids for a while, then I might consider uh, getting a bone mineral density. Should we talk vaccinations, Paul? What do you think? I, it's never the wrong time to talk about vaccinations. <laughs> Anything particularly indicated or contraindicated in someone for who's being actively treated for lupus? So, I mean, patients with lupus should get all of the routine vaccinations, um, you know, obviously influenza, pneumococcus, all the age-appropriate vaccines. Where we have to be careful is with live vaccines. So if you have a patient who's on immunosuppressive medicines, prednisone greater than 20 milligrams, or let's say the patient was on mycophenolate, then or, or cyclophosphamide, then you would want to not give a live vaccine. Um, but patients with lupus who are not immunosuppressed um, can uh, have live vaccines safely. The one thing that always confuses me is when someone is on immunosuppression, what's your threshold for putting them on like trim sulfa to prevent um, P- PJP, whatever, pneumocystis, pneumonia, whatever we're calling it these days. And maybe like, you know, if they become neutropenic, that sort of thing. Is that, do we need to worry about that in primary care? Or will you handle that for us? Yeah, we will handle that for you. Um, and there's really not good guidance um, for patients with lupus on high doses of corticosteroids. Um, they're actually the, the best data for that is in our patients with vasculitis, where we know that prophylaxis can prevent PJP. Um, but it, it's a controversial area, and there's no um, established guidelines. And so we, um, and generally, if, if patients have underlying lung disease, we're likely to prophylax them. But if they don't, uh, we do not usually prophylax. That will continue to remain a mystery, Paul. I think I, we <laughs> we tried to do a uh, one of our journal club, which we call it hotcakes. We tried to do a hotcakes episode uh, and talked about that a little bit, but it was it was about vasculitis because uh, that was we were trying to extrapolate it to this, but it it still seems like a mystery. So we'll leave that in your we'll leave that ball in your court. Well, let's let's talk about this case. We you kind of phrased it earlier. You said someone who has more minor disease, maybe just some joint and skin disease. Let's we actually when we took off her makeup, we saw she had a malar rash and she had the inflammation of her of her joints in her hands and she's got this fatigue. We'll we'll take the she doesn't have any renal findings, just the cytopenias that we mentioned. How might you approach the treatment and and like what's a workhorse drug for lupus? So in that case, I would certainly put this patient on hydroxychloroquine. And hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malarial, is a drug that I believe every patient with lupus should be on unless there's some contraindication to that. Um, um, We know it's helpful for skin disease, for the arthritis. Um, You know, if the cytopenias are severe, it may warrant more aggressive therapy than hydroxychloroquine alone, but with a platelet count of 100,000 and some mild anemia, I think that may be 
fine. Can I ask probably what is what is a stupid question, um, but it's never stopped me before, but sort of fundamentally, what is our treatment goal? So especially with like the hydroxychloroquine, are we hoping for symptom amelioration? Are we hoping to prevent organ dysfunction? Are we hoping for sort of resolution of skin findings, all of the above? So what are we actually treating to when we, when we start medications for lupus? Right. So we are really treating to um, control the degree of inflammation. So someone may have cutaneous disease, you want that to quiet down. They may have arthralgia or arthritis. You want to treat that. There's also good evidence um, that patients on hydroxychloroquine are better protected for the development of major organ involvement. Um, and so, and that's the reason that I always encourage my patients to stay on their hydroxychloroquine because there's evidence that um, it can uh, uh, be protective of more severe disease. Is the dosing there important for us to know? I was reading it used to be higher and now it's like five mg per kg. Yeah, we used to treat six and a half milligrams per kilogram was the highest dose. And now based on um, our concern about retinal disease, it's recommended that the top dose should be five milligrams per kilogram. And then patients need to have baseline eye screening just to make sure that their retinas are normal at baseline and to document anything that's abnormal. And then we generally recommend that our patients get screened by the ophthalmologist once a year with a dilated eye exam. What's your threshold for more for adding on therapy? Like what would cause you to give this lady steroids um, like with the presentation? Would it be if, the, if her joint pain was really severe? Yeah, so if she had, if she had synovitis, Right, and she and that was not controlled with hydroxychloroquine. And remember, hydroxychloroquine is going to take months to work. So okay. if she's got active synovitis, she's not going to wait three or six months for the hydroxychloroquine to work. So you might use corticosteroids um, as a bridge to hydroxychloroquine. The other thing that can be very helpful now, again, this is in a patient without renal disease, is using methotrexate. Like we do for rheumatoid arthritis, methotrexate can be useful for the arthritis associated with systemic lupus. Again, with the caveat, you know, if there's renal disease, you would not use methotrexate. Um, you know, the other thing is sometimes the skin disease can be very severe and very aggressive and may warrant corticosteroids. It may warrant the use of mycophenolate. Um, it really depends on the severity of the disease. I mean, there are some patients that have, you know, very aggressive skin disease, very aggressive joint disease, and that often requires aggressive therapy. I noticed that there's this bilimumab drug which is the, I guess it's a, it's a monoclonal antibody that's specifically approved for lupus. How well does that work? And what, what are the outcomes that you're targeting with that is other than just sort of like decreasing patients' symptoms, does it have, what outcomes do they look at? So bulimumab is approved for the treatment of um, really moderately active lupus that has not responded to other therapies such as hydroxychloroquine or mycophenolate. It um, is not approved for the treatment of lupus nephritis or more aggressive manifestations of lupus. And so generally the patients we're putting on bulimumab or people that have been on hydroxychloroquine or methotrexate or mycophenolate, and they continue to have skin disease, joint disease, constitutional disease. Um, and so the outcomes that we're looking for are really to control those organ system manifestations. 
there are a subset of patients with renal disease that have responded to bulimumab, but it's not approved for that indication. So we've we've gone through the basics. You're going to put the patient on hydroxychloroquine. That's going to take a long time to work, so we'll have them on some prednisone in the meantime, and maybe methotrexate or mycophenolate, depending on how severe the disease is. Are those sort of the frontline agents? Are we missing anything there? So azathioprine is another drug that can be very helpful for some patients, um, uh, particularly for for skin disease and you know, pleuropericarditis and other um, milder manifestations of disease. So I think I'm getting this a little bit. It just seems that it, it just seems that like patients, I, I have to admit, I never, until I was like kind of prepping for this, like I knew hydroxychloroquine, I just didn't realize how important of a drug it was for patients with lupus. And it seems like people are so cavalier about just holding it or uh, maybe patients are like, oh, I don't take that. It doesn't work. But maybe they're not getting the full picture. And, you know, they want, they, they know steroids work. I, I imagine they can feel that quicker and that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sometimes very difficult to encourage patients to stay on their hydroxychloroquine because we're giving them steroids. We may be giving them much more aggressive immunomodulatory therapy, but the, the, the hydroxychloroquine is really, really important. And so I, I always, when I'm seeing my patients, you know, try to hammer that home every time I see them, the importance of that. So I think we've really gone through a lot. I know we could really get into the weeds with like the treatment of lupus and nephritis, but I don't know that that's really within the scope of the show, especially since a rheumatologist and a nephrologist are probably going to be really (laughs) managing that. I feel fully equipped now. I feel like I'm ready. So (laughs) good. Thank you. I mean, we talked about, we talked about how to diagnose. We talked about the basics of treatment and then we talked about the preventive measures. Um, I, I have a pretty good, good sense there. I don't know that I don't. I know there's some things Kate Kate had mentioned. We could ask about drug-induced lupus, but I, I'm not sure if that's um, is that common enough, uh, Beth, that you think we need to know about that. Um, I actually think we see a fair bit of it. And you know, the other thing I might mention is when we're talking about these ANAs that are positive, and we're not sure where they're coming from. Oftentimes, many medications can cause your ANA to be positive, and some of them are the medicines that cause drug-induced lupus. Um, and so, the other thing I would um, tell our listeners is that you know, if you see a positive ANA, you also want to adjudicate the medication list to see if there's a drug on there that may be the culprit. Um, not every person who has an ANA from a drug is going to develop symptoms of drug-induced lupus, uh, but that can happen also. It tends to be, um, in general, milder than systemic lupus, um, more likely to give you sort of skin and joints and not usually a lot of other major organ manifestations, occasionally pleuropericarditis. And are there any particularly notorious medications, say ones that are given in the hospital all the time, say even unnecessarily for blood pressure, <laughs> that sort of spring to mind when you think of... <laughs> say like hydralazine? I mean, just just spitballing here. I mean, that, yeah, nothing of anything specific, but... <laughs> yeah, so hydralazine is, is one that, you know, we see um, procanamide uh, also highly associated. INH um, is associated with drug-induced lupus. Minocycline, we see 
Um, occasionally, a teenager who's been on minocycline for acne who will present with either lupus or vasculitis related to the drug. So, you know, there are some common drugs out there uh, that uh, that we see. All right. Well, as as usual, Paul, I stand corrected. Drug-induced lupus. It's out there, people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Beth, this has been so much fun, and I wanna I wanna let you get back to your evening. So I'll ask you if you have favorite take home points about lupus that you wanted to give to the audience. Favorite take home points. Well, I think we talked quite a bit about the ANA. Um, you know, having an ANA does not make a diagnosis of lupus, although it may make you concerned and go do a careful history and physical. Um, that's very important. Patients with lupus need to be followed very closely um, because almost any organ system can be involved. They need to understand the importance of careful and close follow-up um, and, and taking their medications. Um, and then also, because it's a multi-system disease, we often rely on our other colleagues in other specialties, particularly our nephrology colleagues, occasionally our hematology colleagues. Um, and so it's often a, a team effort when we're taking care of our patients with the most severe disease. Yes, I've noticed patients with lupus tend to uh, accumulate specialists. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a common theme. Well, before, before you go, did you have any, anything you'd like to plug? websites blogs uh, are you publishing fan fiction of any uh <laughs> <laughs> any albums coming out anything <laughs> dropping soon <laughs> any albums <laughs> no i'm not i don't have anything to plug <laughs> all right are you on twitter can the audience find you on twitter so no i mean they can find me there but they won't find anything um <laughs> but i will say so, but I do, um, I do want to plug the Thurston Arthritis Research Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is where I work and uh, where I collaborate with many wonderful colleagues. All right, we will direct people there. We'll put a link in the show notes. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to have you back sometime. I, I hear you're, I hear you're an expert on inflammatory back pain, and the audience knows. <laughs> The audience knows and Paul knows that I believe that I have inflammatory back pain, but I'm not really doing anything about it except for, uh, see, I'm standing right now instead of sitting, and I'm very active, and I feel great. Yeah, sure, other than the low-grade anxiety. <laughs> well, I'm happy to talk with you about it. <laughs> okay, thank you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Thank you, Matt. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for the episode, Dr. Kate Grant, and to our social media team. Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, Chris the Jew Manchu on Facebook. And, oh, now we're all out of order. I'm thrown. Until next time, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
I'm just going to leave that as the end. <laughs>